you have to be graceful in the moments that your heart is sinking, that you feel that you don't see the light and, and really being able to float, you know, in those moments in a very elegant way. And at the same time, not lose your grit to keep going, pound through that fence or that block. Um, and I think it's really balancing those two things because one without the other is not that effective, right? Too much grit is just being foolhardy or stubborn and too much gracefulness is just being acquiescing to the situation. So I think it's really that balance. It is okay to fail. Not all ideas are meant to be successful. I mean, I've had many times in my life I've launched things that I just was way ahead of the time. You know, don't become either so in love with your own idea that you're not honest about its relevancy or its potential for success. Determination. It's an essential ingredient to succeeding in business and overcoming the inevitable challenges any entrepreneurial journey can pose. It's also something that defines Tina Hedges, founder and CEO of Lally Beauty, a beauty brand using only organic, raw, fair trade, non-GMO ingredients. At every turn, Tina has pushed forward to realize her vision of a company that can make a difference to countless beauty customers and the environment as well. Coming up, you'll hear how Tina's career trajectory changed from being on track to run factories in China to starting her own beauty company, standing up for your morals, even if it may cost you your job, how a chance phone call changed Tina's trajectory from going to business school to working on a creative marketing team and learning on the job, how Tina started Lolly as a surprise subscription box service, and the benefits of using your early clients as a focus group to hone in on your brand, gaining traction to boost visibility by collaborating with brands like Adidas and Alexander Wang, and how Tina overcame the obstacles she encountered when trying to find investors, and the dramatic story of how Tina fought through illness to meet with someone who may hold the key to the future of her company. This is the Entreprenista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have, with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done, and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram, with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Tina, we're so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. So what I want to know, you have an extensive background in beauty. How did you first get started in the beauty industry? Actually, it's really a funny story because I didn't mean to end up in the beauty industry. When I went to college, I had a vision that I was going to be a fashion designer. And I actually took a year out of my college experience, so between my junior and senior year of college, and went to mainland China so I could become wow. fluent in Mandarin. Because, and this, I don't want to date myself, but it was 1985, so quite a long time ago. And I had this vision that I was going to run factories in China. I was way You were ahead 20 of my... years old and you had this vision? <laughs> yes. And you went to China? And it was way ahead of China being on anyone's mind. Wow. And I, grad I came back, I graduated from college, and I fell into my first job on um, what we called then, you know, 7th Avenue, which was very garmento fashion. It's where our it was, office is, where we know it well. But, and by the way, in those days, so now I'm talking about 1988, 89, um, the fashion industry wasn't run by private equity or VC or strategic money. It was very, very entrepreneurial. Family but a, businesses. Family right? businesses and things like that. And this gentleman who had cornered the uh, silk market to produce $59 silk dresses for every woman in the United States, which in those days, yes, we wore women wore silk dresses with peplums and shoulder pads and all sorts of things. Um, he had partners in China and he knew that they wanted, they lived in Hong Kong and he was worried about the changeover with Hong Kong and China. So he said, come work with me and then you'll go live in Hong Kong and run my factories. And I said, wow, I get to learn the fashion industry on someone else's dollar. This is fantastic. Took the job. I actually was fired six months later. It was the only time in my career I've been fired. 
I was devastated. My mother said, it's good that this happened to you because everyone gets fired once in their life and you got through it early in your career. <laughs> Get out of the way. That's so, great advice. Yeah, yeah. I got fired because I refused to set up the owner of the company with a model because he was married and had children. <sighs> and I thought ethically that wasn't a good thing good for you. <laughs> it was the moral police at the age of whatever, 20, 21. And, um, and so I started looking for a job. And I happened to meet the young president of Christian Dior Perfumes. He was a German gentleman. He had just come over from Germany to run all of Dior, um, skincare, fragrance, and color cosmetics. Where did you meet him? Are you just out and about networking? I was or? networking. Okay. And someone – I don't actually remember. It was someone who said meet someone who – and he was he was quite stern. And I went to go meet him. And in those days in beauty – um, especially at companies like LVMH and Dior and things like that, the corporate boardrooms were full of the most exquisite Limoges china. You were served by a butler with white gloves, your coffee. I mean, it was like a wow. whole other experience. So I go into this conference room. He meets me. He says, what do you want to do? I said, marketing, advertising, communications. He said, okay, I'll give you a job, but you have to go work in a store. Everyone in the company has to go work in a store because that's where our business begins and ends. And if you're not willing to do that, and I won't tell you how long you'll be there, you don't have a role in my company. And I remember coming home and thinking about it and thinking about it and asking my dad and my mom. And they were like, I was like, I, I went to an Ivy League college. Like, I'm going to go sell in a store. And my father said, what's the worst thing that can happen? That you do it for three months and he lied to you? You know, you got experience, you learned how to sell a product. So I accepted and I went to sell fragrance at Macy's Herald Square. Wow. Toughest thing I ever did in my career. So that's how I started. That's and I worked actually, myself into the into the office. That's actually still part of the Macy's training program. And I think Bloom, Bloomingdale's too, right? When you graduate, they put you right on the floor in retail just so that you can learn from the ground up, which according to what you're saying, is very, very important. So. It's super important because the smallest detail at a counter can make the difference of, of your business. And that's your consumer. You have to be touching the consumer. Would you say there was anything you learned from those days that you still use now? To those days on the retail over, floor? Yeah, that's such a good question. Well, first of all, I realized never judge a book by its cover. Some of the customers coming through who – you would think maybe wouldn't uh, spend money to buy an $80 fragrance, actually would buy three or $400 mm. worth of fragrance. And some of the consumers that you thought had the spendable income or disposable income would just snub you and walk by. So number one, never judge your customer by their appearance. And number two, don't overlook the smallest of details. You know, really listen. Sometimes the most important um piece of information that will impact your business is said very, very offhandedly. And you have to really dig and you have to be really listening. Um, I mean, something stupid, but I'll give you an example. I remember from those days, we used to build these big um, tester units that would sit on the counter. No one in marketing, they would think about how beautiful they looked. How could we keep them clean? How could we change the product in and out? But no one would think about what is the height? Mm. of the beauty advisor behind the counter. And more often than not, we built them so high that the the beauty advisor wasn't seen <laughs> by the customer. Probably couldn't reach it either. Yeah, especially somebody my height. I yeah. mean, I'm tiny. So, you know, then it kind of – so it's just silly things like that, but you don't – Would you st- would you speak up and tell them when, and give them this feedback? Well, in those days, I wasn't – no one was listening to me. Right. But then years later when I ended up in, you know – product innovation and global brand management at companies like Lauder and L'Oreal, then I I did have some say. And actually, whenever I would travel, I used to spend, I'd say, 70% of my time um, overseas going to different markets from China and Korea to Brazil and Latin America and all sorts of things in Europe. Um, I always would insist in being in store um, at least one or two days out of every trip um, and touching the consumer and seeing the marketplace from that perspective. So That's so important. So how long did the CEO keep you in Macy's Herald Square? I was there about, I want to say about six months. Okay. 
And then I got into advertising and corporate communications. And in those days, we were doing everything in-house. We were doing media buying. We were doing ad creation. We were – but it was also a different time in terms of budgets. We would launch a perfume and we would spend just on the media introduction, like the launch party and the beauty editors, we'd spend $10 million wow. on a party. Wow. Flying the beauty editors to Paris on – the Concord, giving them Christian Dior couture clothing, having a magnificent party in the Louvre or something. And then, you know, it's just a different – there was no KPIs. It was like – Get the press. Those, get those the, were the days. Yeah. Yes, I wish I was a beauty editor back then. I know, right? I, w- I wish I had enjoyed it more. I Did was you just stuffing the bag. No, I you was, didn't get to go on the trips? I didn't get to go on the – I was just stuffing the bags. I was typing the the invites. Yeah. It was quite a quite a time. And then I went from there to – I got into – I was going to go to business school. I decided I loved the beauty industry and it was, in, it was strategic enough but also playful and creative and um, it really satisfied both sides of my, my brain. And – but then I, I said, you know, let me go to business school and I applied and I was going to go to NCAD in France and um, – I got a random call from this woman who to this day is one of my best friends and mentors and um, shaped me as she was my boss for many years and, and a great leader named Catherine Walsh. And Catherine heard about me from someone, had just left Lauder to go to three companies that were sold by Revlon to the Saudi royal family. This was about 91 or 92 and um, and said, I'm creating an entire department called creative marketing, which is basically from ideation to point of sale, owning every part of coming up with the idea of a product, what will it look like, how will it be packaged, how will it be named, what does the formula look like, and getting it all the way through development um, until it actually hits the the floor of the store. And she said, um, come talk to me. And I said, well, I'm going to business school, but I'll come talk to you. And I went and had breakfast with her. It ended up being a three-hour breakfast. And I decided it was one of those pivotal moments in your life that you're like, this decision is really going to impact the rest of my life. And I just said, this is my business school education. And it was because we were outsourcing from Revlon. So I had to put on a R&D hat, a quality control hat a packaging hat, a forecasting, a marketing, a product development. I mean, I learned every single part of the business. And I was there um, developing products across every category, skin, hair, color, fragrance, body bath. And then I went, then Catherine left after six months and went to Lauder. And I was left reporting directly into the president. So it was an amazing experience. Then went to Lauder for seven years and then went to L'Oreal. And that, that was my corporate life. Then I went into the startup world. So you really can't get that experience in business school. So I think you made the right decision. It was so funny. Years later, when I'd be interviewing for, you know, director level jobs to report to me, it would be MBAs out of Columbia or, or Stern. And, you know, I would look at their resume and I'd be like, it's great, but you have no experience. Like, so you learn from doing. You learn from doing. Did you make the decision at that breakfast? You told her, "Okay, I'm going to work for you," or did you sleep on it? Talk to your family. I actually made it. I just had this instinct yeah. that um, it was the right person at the right time to teach me what I needed to know, and and she was quite extraordinary. I remember my first day of work. She took me aside and she said, "I'm going to tell you one thing. If I'm not in the room and you have to make a decision, I expect you to make it." If it turns out to be the wrong decision, I will help fix it. Mm. If I find out that you make no decision, you're fired. I'm going to use that, that one. Was, yes. <laughs> I think that this is being recorded right now. Actually, that is the I exact advice I needed for this week. Really? So thank Why? you. Because it was, uh, it was uh, a big week at, at Social Fly and, um, you know, we've been growing really quickly. And, and this is supposed to be more about you, yes. but um, it's good – that was that's great advice to empower people and allow them to learn and make their own mistakes and just let them know that you're you're here for them which i think Stephanie and i are always doing but i it's nice we should be saying that more 
Well, you know, it's it's funny. I have, I have a very dear friend who has a wonderful way of putting things, and he once said to me, the best way to catch a bus is to miss a bus because at least you know you're standing at the bus station. And I think that that's very um, – a good metaphor for making – for, you know, it kind of doesn't matter if you make the wrong decision because at least you're standing at the bus station. Right. You're right. making decisions. You're moving forward even if it's not exactly where you want to go. The worst thing, especially in a startup, is to do nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I do believe – I you know, I'm not a big fan of, of um, some of the, you know – gajillionaires in the world of, of like Facebooks and stuff. But I do believe the philosophies in a startup of fail fast um, and learn is very, very important. So empowering your team to fail is, an, you know, instead of being perfect, it drives me crazy when I see people working for me that just are paralyzed because mm-hmm. they want everything to be perfect. I'm like, if I waited for things to be perfect, I wouldn't have launched Lolly. It's imperfect. Corny does this all the time. Yeah, you just have to go. Just do otherwise, it. Yeah, otherwise you won't start. It won't happen. Now you're three months delayed, maybe yeah. longer, and then you didn't learn anything. Exactly. <laughs> so I, it's, a, it's better to make the wrong move than no move. I 100% so that is so. I agree. We're on the same page. So tell us about why you started Lolly. How did that come to be? I had um, – well, first of all, I, I worked in the beauty industry forever, as you know. And on a personal level, I grew up in Jamaica, West Indies. My parents are Cuban. I grew up in the Jamaican Blue Mountains where I would get a sting from a bee and my mother would grab three leaves from three different trees, crush them, rub it in, and the the sting would be gone in, in two minutes. And and then I learned, you know, the sort of science of beauty, which was taking all these natural ingredients, distilling them, syner- you know, synthesizing them into compounds, and then creating products. Um, but in my heart, I always knew, and also living around the world, like China and things, learning all sorts of rituals from Ayurveda to Chinese traditional medicine, I always never lost touch with the idea that beauty actually started um, from natural or food grade ingredients, we've just created you know a five hundred and ninety two billion dollar industry that is polluting and diluting. Most personal care products are eighty to ninety five percent water. That is the number one ingredient. That is, I mean, astounding when you think the world is running out of water, right? And when you have water as a number one ingredient, you're then adding preservatives and toxins and emulsifiers to give different textures to water because water is water. Mm -hmm. So how do you make water into a cream or a lotion or gel? Um, And then overpackaging in plastic. And as we know, by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish. 192 billion packages are the beauty industry is responsible for putting in landfills a year. Think about all that over-packaging of plastic. So I woke up one day and I just felt like, wow, I've contributed to sending water with nasties and toxins over-packaged in plastic into the universe. And that doesn't feel right to me. And so I really ha- had zero desire to do anything in the beauty industry. And I Did just you start- quit your job that day? Like what happened that day? No, I was already in the startup world. Okay. Um, I was working on a beverage brand. I was working on a baby bottle brand. I was working up, by the way, I know everything about baby bottles. <laughs> <laughs> I helped design and, and patent a baby bottle. But I, I really, I just didn't want anything to do with, people would bring me brands that were launching in beauty and do you want to get involved? I'd be like, no, it just, it just looks like, it just like looks like such a commodity and we're lying and I just don't feel good about this. And then I had this epiphany one day and it just happened to be because I bought a juice at one of the juice bars. I was sipping it. I was thinking, wow, I just paid $15 to have something custom made for me, but like, was it worth it? <laughs> and then I walked into like a specialty beauty store and looked at the row of argan oils. And I was like, why would I buy that argan oil over this one? It's one ounce, both of them. That has a doctor brand name. That has a model brand name. This one is $125. That's 68 What am I buying? And when was it made? Was it over-processed to take out the, the scent so they could drop in a synthetic fragrance? How long has it been sitting on the shelf? 
Does it have silicones and dimethicones and other dilutants in it? And then I went from there to a concept in Chelsea Markets called the filling station, which is a food concept where you see vats of oils and salts and vinegars mm. and you have glass bottles and jars and refill, recycle, reuse. And I just went, oh, wow. Why can't we deconstruct beauty back into food grade, um, fully transparent, fresh, raw ingredients that are either pre-blended into what I call your white t-shirt, a base that you can use without blending, or allow you to add things in to customize, or we customize for you. And so that's where the idea of Lolly started. And then I launched an MVP out of my Upper East Side studio apartment, which is a whole funny story, and then got traction and then went to raise money and launched Lolly officially in March of this year. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Coming up, you'll hear how Tina brought in money, the right team, and customers. So now we're at the point in your story where you launched Lolly Beauty. So first, we want to take a a quick minute to celebrate. So something that Stephanie and I do is we like to surprise and delight our guests. So as you may have noticed, we have uh, treats here for you from we noticed your favorite uh, place is Chacha Matcha. Ingredients. Our favorite ingredients is uh, matcha. I love it. I was looking at the matcha and thinking, I I thought it was just serendipity, but I love that you actually... (laughs) really did it um, thoughtfully because of our matcha coconut paste mask. So it goes really well. That's so cute. Thank you. So yeah, so feel free to dig in as we're talking. Uh, And then we also have um, some surprises for you down under your seat. Wow. Thank you. Do I look that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. (laughs) I um, I love the name Entreprenista. Because, you know, I'm Cuban, so Ista, you always ah. add Ista. Or Ita, Inita, like Tinita, you know, like, it's a like in term of endearment, kind of. So do you so. speak Spanish fluently? I do. I, I, it's, I'd say it's like my second language in speaking, but my first language in understanding. Okay. If that makes any yeah. sense. Um, I, I think because, like, whether someone speaks in Spanish or English to me, it feels like the same. But I, my first inclination is to speak English back just because I've always grown up in an mm-hmm. English-speaking country. But, oh, this is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Lots of surprises and, and treats in there for you. Like, love, and follow. I love that. And wait, so do you speak Mandarin as well? I used to be fluent okay. in Mandarin. Um, I wanted I'm, to ask that question earlier. I know. the do you know Sarah? <laughs> yeah. So we have Sarah on the podcast, too. I love Sarah. She's awesome. She's such a talent. And she's a really, you know, the beauty industry can kind of be a mean girl club. And she's not one of the she mean girls. She is not. She oh, is yeah. She's the sweetest. sweetest. Yeah. She was actually one of our first clients when we started the business. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. So we had her on, too. So what I want to know is... When you started the business out of your apartment, how did you figure out – I guess you worked in the startup world, but how did you know what to do first and how to build your MVP? Wow. That's such a great question. I don't know if I knew what to do first because it's so much easier to do things for other people yeah. than to do it for yourself. So where you have clarity, where you can walk in the room to a client and be like, okay, step one, step two, step three, when it's you and you're alone in your – studio apartment on the Upper East Side and it's your money and there's no one else to bounce ideas off, you don't have that same um, sort of precision in in knowing what to do. I remember just kind of saying, well, let here's – basically I backed into, okay, I need to finance this myself to get some traction because I knew how difficult it was going to be to go raise money. And that's a whole other story we should talk about. We're going to get into that. Um, <laughs> And and so I said, I can't launch my true vision of Lolly on my piggy bank. So what should I use my money to do? And what I decided to do was to launch a version of Lolly that was more like a paid focus group. So I launched Lolly as the blue apron of do-it-yourself beauty. Interesting. Not because and it was a surprise three-month subscription box. Not because that was my business model, but because 
I wanted to send into the universe um, different levels of customization and have women tell me what level they were willing to do at home. Mm. And that's what happened. And what was phenomenal, and I've never seen this in my marketing career, is women would come. I had no picture of what I was sending them. I had no description. I didn't realize I wasn't allowed to charge them unless I was shipping in the next 24 hours or 48 hours. So I charged them $105 upfront for three months of a surprise subscription box. And they would pay me and they would write to me and be like, I love what you're doing. This is a revolution. By the way, what am I getting? <laughs> and I, I was like, wow. How did you find these people? Were you- they found me. I didn't do anything. I wasn't doing it was all organic. So you put I up did, a website and then? I put up a website, but I got press. Okay. I got amazing press. How did you of, do that? Word of mouth, um, people stumbling. I think it was the right time. I was way ahead of customization or personalization. Like right now, I, I just was actually writing a quote for a media publication that was asking me my view on trends for personalization in 2019. And I was like, it's a bubble. Like if I see one more company launch, especially in skincare, like, oh, we've figured out 25,000 ingredients with machine learning to figure out what your best customization is. I'm like, the beauty industry that has hundreds of millions of dollars in research doesn't go through 25,000 ingredients because they're like four ingredients that work for acne, anti-aging, you know, redness, irritation. I mean, it's, yeah. So um, anyway, so I got noticed by press and I got enough traction. I started doing collaborations. I'm a very big believer in collaborating um, with brands mm -hmm. and partnerships as a way, if you find others that are speaking to your consumer, then find a way to get in the room with them. Yep. And, um, and so I did a lot of collaborations. I did something with Adidas. I did something with... Um, uh, Alexander Wang. What do you do with Adidas? How do you tie in Adidas to their, um I got contacted by their event agency that was charged with putting together wellness events for Adidas across the city. And they said, could you do custom blending at our events? I was like, absolutely. Were you doing this all by yourself at the time? Yes. Just and my, my mother was one of my... Um, Pick and packers, so she would make me put on telenovelas on Netflix. <laughs> oh, I love that. And she would get so into like the Mexican soap opera that she would forget what she was counting. <laughs> and then half the time, I had to undo the box and and like redo it. And then on top of that, our box was white, and my mother has beautiful long red nails, very Latin, you know, lots of gold rings and long red nails. And I would see like red nail polish marks <laughs> on the boxes. I'd be like, oh my gosh. But she was so enthusiastic. So, yeah, I mean, it was – I would get friends to come over. I'd promise bottles of wine and can you help me pick and pack and – got to be scrappy. It was really it. scrappy. That's how Love you have it. to do it in the early days. Yeah. So tell us about how you raised money. What was your first step? Because Stephanie and I have never done that and I think now we wouldn't even know where to start. Oh, my gosh. Well, if you go to do that, I'm super happy to, one, Rolodex dive for you and, two, to give you any um, – encouragement, advice, help. I have to tell you before I tell you how I did it, that um, something just happened recently in the cohort that I am sitting in, um, which is a tech startup uh, accelerator. And they're now interviewing the new class. And I guess this gentleman got in and I overheard the other day this conversation. And this um, exemplifies what I think is wrong with raising money for women, female founders, and especially if you're over the age of 40, because there's such ageism involved. So this young gentleman was on the phone talking to an investor very loud, and he goes, yeah, I know nothing about the industry. Yeah, I have no product. Yeah, I have no marketing deck. Yeah, I have no financials. By the way, I'm going to ask you to sign an NDA, but I'm not going to tell you anything and share any information with you. And I've already raised $3 million. Oh, my gosh. So you either decide you're investing in me or not. And I heard this conversation and like steam started coming out of my ears because I was like, I've raised $2.5 million and I have worked myself to the bone with traction points, social proof, you know, product market fit, 
everything, like every that every dollar I've raised, I've like sweated to raise. And here's this guy who doesn't even know the sector, doesn't know anything, doesn't have anything. He just has an idea and is raising money. And he rate and he raised, raised money. three million dollars. And he probably has a better valuation than I do. And I sat back, I was like, this is such I'm sorry to say it, it's such a bro club. Mm-hmm. And even though there's a lot of wonderful funds out there now concentrating on women, female founders, they still have their own club. It's all the Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, and you have to be under 35 and have no experience. So I already, having been in the startup world for many years, I already knew that I was going to confront that prejudice. So um, when I started to go raise money, I just went to cherished people that I know And I think I've created a lot of goodwill because I'm somebody who always tries to help other people no matter what. So I started calling in a few chips and I said, I want you to Rolodex dive and I want you to give me three to five names of people you think I need to meet. And I literally did that. I would not leave a room or a conversation without asking every single person I thought could be useful to do that. And someone who was in private equity, gave me a list of five names. And one of the names turned out to be my lead investor wow. um, in my first round. And and so that really worked. Had you raised money before or was this the first time? I, I had raised money. My okay. first startup in 2005, I raised a million to without even knowing how to do it. I just – I had an amazing platform. I mean I hijacked two seasons of a reality TV show on on Bravo and launched a hair brand in Sephora and QVC and built a $30 million brand in 18 months. So oh, my I, gosh. I, we need to talk about that, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. What brand was, too, was that? It was called Jonathan Product, and we had a, a product called Dirt. And it sold over 100,000 pieces in the first two months of launch. I mean, what show did it, you get the product it on? Was, it was called Blowout. It was about this narcissistic hairstylist, and I was on the show. And <laughs> oh, he my would, gosh. What network was this on? I shouldn't Bravo. say that because oh, I didn't listen said, to okay. this. Um, but um, it was on Bravo. It was early days of reality right. TV. There was Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, America's Biggest Loser, The Apprentice, and there was Blowout. And they'd had one season of the show. Amex had been a sponsor and then it failed terribly because they didn't know how to integrate sponsors at the, that point. And the manager of Jonathan just smiled and dialed, got my name from somebody. I had just left L'Oreal. And was consulting, and he said, I have a TV show. I have a celebrity hairstylist. We're filming a second season. We have no money, no team, no idea for the products. We want to do a hair brand. We have two months to put a deal together. Do you think you can do it? I heard you're really good. (laughs) And I hung up the phone, and I was like, hmm. And I just was really smart about it. I went, if I do say so, I thought, I can't go traditional way of raising money. So I went to a manufacturer that was owned by a German industrialist and it was a hair care facility in Baltimore. And I knew he had deep pockets and he was making pennies on the dollar selling as, you know, to other brands. And I said, what if you could have a better gross margin because you could have your own brand and it comes with a free advertising campaign. And he said, where do I sign the check? Wow. But that was a good part of the story. The bad part of the story is I had no idea I was a founder I didn't negotiate for myself. In those days, I didn't know anyone in VC world or I had no one to mentor me. So I essentially had like a tiny sliver of the company that was meaningless. And so, Aye. yeah, that was my first learning lesson going <laughs> learning forward. Lesson. But, um, but anyway, so my point of raising money is um, don't negate people who know people who know you are probably the first mm-hmm. wave you need to go to. So when because we have a lot of listeners who are first starting businesses and yeah. thinking about whether they should raise money or they should try to do it themselves first, what advice would you give to someone when you're actually pitching an investor? Like, what is that process actually like? What do you have to prepare? Yeah. What are those meetings like? Wow, we could spend a whole <laughs> podcast on that because I've done so many pitch competitions and things like that. First of all, I believe practice, practice, practice. Don't be afraid to go sign up for every pitch competition you can, not because even if you don't really want that prize or you don't think it's an association, just to get on the stage or get in the room and be under a time constraint, 30 seconds, five minutes, whatever it may be, 
to encapsulate what it is you're trying to do and why it matters, you know, who you are, what you're doing, and why should I care? Those are the three questions you really have to answer. Um, I think that's invaluable. And I, I'm a pretty good picture. Like I'm a good storyteller. I love to talk, you know, clearly, like I could be here all afternoon with you. So that part of the pitching didn't scare me. But even someone with my experience, you know, there are areas and I'm less comfortable. Like I don't want to like dive into the financials because deep inside, I know no one really knows. You have to create your five-year financial plan because you have to show you have critical thinking, you know how to think about the business, but those numbers, any real investor pushes that aside and they're investing in you. So your passion, your commitment, your understanding of the sector or not, because a lot of investors, as I said, invest in people who know nothing (laughs) about the sector, but you have to really don't create a business and go out to raise money just because you think it's something to do. Right. Because it is so hard. What was it like when you finally got your first yes? It was incredible. But actually, that's like another story. Like the universe. <laughs> You've got great I, stories. Yeah. <laughs> the universe. So I was on my – so I had been talking to my lead investors. Um, they're very prominent family um, that own um, – it's a family fund of a big multi-billion dollar beauty company. And we had been talking for several months and they had said verbally, yes, we're going to make an investment. And then they disappeared. And I didn't hear from them for two months. I didn't know at the time that someone in the family was was mm. ill. When they finally re- resurfaced, they were like, we're really interested, but the three brothers had to agree. And one brother was living in Tokyo and the other brother was moving and living in Geneva. And the third brother was here in in New York. So they said, it's going to take like two or three months for us to arrange calendars. And I was literally on my last dime and I knew like I needed – to get Lolly funded. Or How much had you already invested of your own money? I put in about 120K. Okay. And um, I don't know how I did that. That was like fishes and loaves. I really like, I don't know how I did it. Um, but anyway, I said to him on the phone, what if I got on a plane to Geneva tomorrow? And he said, would you do that? Because my brothers and both brothers happened to be in Geneva. And I was like, Yes. And I was thinking, I'll cash in my Amex miles. I'll get on a plane. I have a friend who lives in Geneva. So I got in. He said, great, because then you can meet my father. And although he's not going to be an investor, he's chairman of the board. And, you know, so I get to Geneva and that night I get deathly ill. And I was on the floor of a bathroom for 12 hours. And I thought, I'm going to miss this appointment. I'm not going to, like, I physically could not stand up. Mm. And my friend whose apartment I was staying at knocked on the door and she said, you have to leave in half an hour. I was like, I I don't think I can make it. And she, I'll never forget this. She stood in the doorway. She looked at me and she said, you have worked so hard to get to this moment. I'm not going to let you miss it. I'm going to get you some ginger ale and some saltines. (laughs) You're going to pull your hair back. Thank God when I started to get sick, I had put my hair in a ponytail because I had a really great blowout. And I was like... (laughs) Very no important. one is messing with the First hair. Thing, like, protect, protect the blowout. The <laughs> protect the blowout. So my hair looked really good. But anyway, I made it, and I went to that meeting, and Papa liked what I was doing and said yes, and I knew I knew at that moment I had the money. And that was an incredible – because it was, it was so emotionally challenging, but it was physically challenging too. It was like I had to go through that marathon. Sounds like and a, that, yeah. a movie. So what did you do right after? Go to sleep? <laughs> We went to Paris. <laughs> we went to Paris, had a weekend in Paris. It was really fun. <laughs> That's so exciting. Coming up, we'll talk ingredients. What makes both the Lolly Beauty line and Tina's team so special? A common theme from all of the guests we've interviewed on our podcast so far is that they've all relied on support from other women through groups. So we decided to start an Entrepreneista Facebook group. Head on over to Facebook and search Entrepreneistas. We really wanted to create a community for Entrepreneistas to connect, share ideas, help each other solve problems, and learn from all of our collective experiences. If you join the group, it's really a safe space to talk about being an entrepreneur, sharing your wins, asking for help when needed. It's going to be an exciting 2019, and we can't wait to meet you so we can learn and grow together.
So now you're in Paris. You may or may not still be sick. And I think you have a great blowout. What happens next? She definitely still has a great blowout, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <Yes. laughs> Always preserve the blowout. Um, blowout and your manicure. Those are the two things, you know, Very you always important. need to, to take care of. Um, so I got back to the States. I raised the money. I circled the rest of the capital. I raised a million dollars. Amazing. Thank you. Um, I did a priced equity round. So um, I, you know, it's a little bit more complicated and harder than just doing a, a, a note, a convertible or safe. But um, I felt it was really important that the investors own equity and were driving the ship with me versus, you know, when you have people sign notes, um, they're alliances or their goals aren't always aligned with you because they get a better deal if your valuation goes down, not up sometimes. So the way the discounts work. So um, so I did that and it took a little, a couple months. And then I got into two accelerators. I got into Project Entrepreneur because I did a pitch competition and that was phenomenal. Is that part of Rent the Runway? That's that is it. Rent the Runway's foundation with UBS. And it's a six or seven week accelerator. I did that in the summer of 2016. And I also got into Grand Central Tech's accelerator, which was particularly um, a proud moment for me because they get a thousand applications. They take 18 companies. Wow. And I was the only female founder, definitely the only one over the age of 35 or 40. And um, originally I'd been told by investors I wasn't pitching tech. So to be in a tech accelerator that's so acclaimed. And I, then I had my head down until March of 2000. Um, so I guess that was 2017. Sorry, my years are a bit mixed up because um, I launched in March of 2018. So tell us yeah. more about how the whole line came to be with the ingredients. You had to figure out sourcing. They're in these beautiful – we're looking at these in these beautiful glass recyclable bottles. Yeah. yeah. So we – at Lolly, and Lolly stands for Living Organic Loving Ingredients – um, we are the world's first zero-waste organic beauty brand. So what does that mean? We are 100% waterless. We do not add any water to anything we do. So any liquid you see is a fermentation like a, um, a vinegar, a hydrosol or a distillate um, or a juice. We also upcycle from organic food supply. So our plum elixir, which is our one of our hero products, it's a face and hair oil that is um, more effective than argan or marula. Wow. Um, you can even use it on your lips. We work with this farm in France that grows a very rare plum called the Ente plum. It even has a museum. That's so cool. Plum. And they were throwing away the kernel when they were making um, prune juice and pitted plums. And so we work with them to crush the kernel. And we then did tests and found out how powerful it is for skin and hair, like an anti-ager, um, antioxidant, um, hydrator and um, can I try it on my lips? You can try it on your lips. Um, you can try it on your face, on your hair. It'd be great for your hair, Courtney. Yeah, I need um, something. You can and, tell. And um, we just actually did a consumer <laughs> test, by the way, and 91% of consumers said they felt instant hydration. Um, and okay. the scent. I'm put, I just put this on, on my, my lips right now, and my lips are very chapped. Uh -huh. This feels amazing. And by the way, the scent. Is the natural scent of the plum. I, I love plums. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's, it's really awesome. So we create these multitasking wow. bases for skin, hair, and body. And then you can mm. use them as is. Or you can customize at home by adding in from our raw collection. Or we customize for you at our pop-up blending bars. Or, or we're going to be offering full customization online as well. So really, it's, it's beauty um, – pure, potent, and personalized. It's made for you how you want to um, experience it. And but it's with beautiful. A, <laughs> thanks. But with a fully sustainable mission. We actually just became a B Corps, which I'm really, really proud of. What does that mean? So we're a public benefit corporation, which means that our, we are entitled via our mission and um, supported by our directors and our shareholders to make decisions that are um, not always in a profitable uh, direction, but based on supporting our mission. So it really, you're a mission-based, um, profit-driven company. I love that. Yeah. I love that. 
Yeah, it's great. How so are you, Reed Parker, for example, yeah. is a B Corp. How are you marketing the, the company right now? Um, word of mouth is very important. You know, Estee Lauder used to say, telephone, telegraph, tell a woman. And that hasn't stopped. That's what your business is about, right? Um, By the way, when are we collaborating? Um, So it's really word of mouth. We do a lot of events, um, a lot of partnerships. We are working on some capsule collections. Um, We've been very lucky that some media platforms have produced content for us, like um, Attention. Uh, did a video on our zero waste oh, mission. That's great. Right. I always watch those videos. Yeah. Did you have to pay for that or they just found you and wanted no, to do a video? No, they just found us. And we're working on something else with a property of BuzzFeed Ooh. that they found us as well. So um, that's really exciting because it's it's truly authentic content. Do you see your orders increasing? Are you tracking on your Google Analytics yeah. and seeing where it's coming from? We are. We're still you know, in baby steps. We're still working through our user experience on the site and some – um, you know, tech glitches that happen and things like that. But um, yes, we're seeing the forward momentum. We're seeing customers coming, you know, most important to me is customers returning and purchasing more products. I I put customer service as the number one priority. Um, everyone on my team has to, the minute we get, we have a, a chat bot, the minute we get anything in our customer service queue, we answer it immediately. I get involved personally. I, you know, I think one bad customer turned into a happy customer is worth a hundred happy customers. Absolutely. So that's very important to me. Talk to us about your team. So now you've raised this money and it was just you. You needed to scale and grow. How did you figure out who to hire first? And what does your team look like now today? That's an amazing question. So first, um, and I think this is probably true for a lot of your listeners as well, especially if they're first-time entrepreneurs, there's sometimes a lot of fear involved in actually hiring people. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of resistance to hiring. I felt more comfortable having freelancers or consultants because I didn't feel the, the emotional commitment or responsibility. When you hire someone as an employee, all of a sudden you're like, wow, this person is entrusting their life to me and I need to make sure I can meet payroll, right? So I think I had a lot of resistance to that. And I also had been doing Lolly on my own for so long that there was also a part of me was like, oh yeah, I can do this. You can do it better. I can do yeah. it. <laughs> and it's faster for me. I don't want to explain the the getting people up to speed and explaining and creating a culture where the information is easily accessible and not owned by just one or two individuals. I mean, that takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Building a culture takes so much work. Um, I I think we, I'm finally getting to a place with Lolly that I see the culture. But so anyway, to answer your question, the first person I hired was um, a director of ops because we source every ingredient ourselves. We source all our packaging. We do all creative, all design, everything in house. So there's a lot of logistics. We have over 120 ingredients that are coming from around the world. So um, I knew that that was very important. I also wanted to make sure that I I created the back end of the business in a way that with scale, we wouldn't have to go back and undo Mm -hmm. what wasn't done right. So we have Google spreadsheet pivot table after pivot table with part number and, you know, our gross margin and our blended goes, you know, like all of that is sorted through, which is fantastic. So that was my first hire. And he um, was an amazing addition to the team. And then um, I really wanted a director of growth. And I was looking and like a growth hacker, and I was looking and looking and looking for literally seven months, asking everybody I knew, do you know a growth hacker? Do you know? But everyone would be like, you're too small, and the people who would be really great for you, they want to earn $300,000 a year. And I was like, I can't pay that. Um, and it was a serendipitous moment that I happened to be on one of those tech community email chains, and I opened my phone, and it was a top email in my inbox And I read it and it said, these five amazing people were just let go from a startup because they downsized. Does anyone need blank, blank and a growth hacker? And I clicked on his profile on LinkedIn and I was like, 
I need to meet you right away. <laughs> and I got on the phone with him, and he's 26 years old from um, Atlanta. He had moved to New York seven weeks prior for this job and got let go. And I had a phone call with him, and on the first phone call, I said, I've been manifesting you for seven months, so I really hope you're coming to work for me. <laughs> and he was so taken aback by that, but I think he was like, she's kind of unusual. I, I want to learn more. <laughs> And and he's been an amazing addition to the team. And and I think everyone I've been attracting have, have a really um big heart mm-hmm. and and they really care about what we're doing. And so that's important. very important. So yeah. important. So is there anything that you're working on in the business right now where you feel like you need additional help or support? Because something Courtney and I like to do as part of our podcast, we'll put 60 seconds on the clock and do a brainstorm and we'll help you brainstorm how to solve a problem or could be a marketing idea. So whatever you want to brainstorm, oh, that's we're amazing. here for you. Um, really, the biggest thing is how do we build more traction? How do we build um, – you know, I think we have some awareness and some really great um, uh, silos, but how do we how do we get this more out there? How do we build the traction? How do we build the audience, both not only from a community perspective? I'm very happy we just reached over ten thousand on Instagram, Yay. and everyone was you know we it's a personal uh, we acquired it really organically, but how do we build a bigger audience? I mean, I need. I'm going to need to go raise money again, yeah. and I need that traction, that hockey stick. So um, what are things that we could do as a brand? If you're looking from the outside that you think we could do better or um, are opportunities we may not be thinking about. All right. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Are we ready to go? All right. Uh, I was just just jump in and say something really important for any beauty brand is to really work with influencers that care about your brand. So as you probably know, influencer marketing is super saturated, especially in the beauty industry, but you want to find the influencers who actually genuinely love your product, which shouldn't be too hard because it's beautiful and it's great, but focus on influencer marketing and having these these people speak about your brand, talk about you all the time. And I think being really strategic in which influencers, influencers you're selecting, because we were talking before we started recording that your products are safe for pregnancy. And for me, I feel like I'm spending so much time Googling what beauty products are safe for pregnancy, what ingredients do I need to avoid, and now that I'm pregnant, I get targeted with ads on Facebook and Instagram every single day for products for pregnancy. So if you are targeting women who are pregnant, this product is perfect for them, and we really care about making sure we're not putting any chemicals in our body or anything that's bad for us, so maybe finding pregnant women influencers to to be promoting the product and then putting ad spend behind those pieces of content to reach more women. It's it's you're so right on. I uh, you know, we just got written up by Vogue uh, about one of the beauty editors is pregnant and she used our date nut roulette all over her belly and said she can't keep it in, enough in stock for her own beauty cabinet. And we weren't really targeting pregnant um women um you know, we didn't develop the brand just to be for pregnant women, but it's absolutely a safe choice. Um, as long as you don't have any nut allergies yeah. or things like that, you always have to patch test, as I say. But um, but yes, that's a great idea. I would love to ask, do you believe um, in influencer strategy in paying influencers or not? Because yes. it's a big debate. Okay. Yes, but – you want to find the influencers who genuinely love your product. So it's very easy to pay an influencer. A lot of influencers are, are willing to do anything for any amount of money. But you want to find the influencers who are very particular and will say no to brands if it doesn't align with what they truly believe and then also build that relationship with them. So I don't like when our clients say, okay, here's the budget, hire these influencers, and then they don't want to meet them. They don't want to take them out to dinner and really build that genuine relationship and that's so important. So you personally will likely have to invest the time in, in oh, meeting and, and, yeah. and educating the influencers yes. and getting them really, really excited okay, so about the product. Let's do it. Let's do it. Perfect. Yes, let's make it happen. <laughs> let's stir up beauty. Yeah. I love that. That's our, our tagline. Yeah. The, our, well, our mission, we say we're on a mission to stir up beauty to make a conscious change. Um, so yeah, we stir up beauty all well, the time. We need to, we're going to have everyone learn about Lowly Beauty. Have you partnered with Sakar Life? 
They seem like a good, to. a good connection for I you. I would love to. And we have some Their packaging is so similar. Yeah. yeah. And we've had some, put, you know, connect the dots. They haven't really bitten. So if you can help, that would be Let's awesome. Let's see what we can see do. See what we can do. Yes. <laughs> so I want to know, what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? It means um, balancing graciousness with grit. You have to be graceful in the moments that your heart is sinking, that you feel that um, you don't see the light, and and really being able to float, you know, in those moments in a very um, elegant way, and at the same time not lose your grit mm. to keep going, you know, house pound through that fence or that block. Um, and I think it's really balancing those two things because one without the other is not that effective, right? Too much grit is just being foolhardy or stubborn and too much gracefulness is just being acquiescing to the situation. So I think it's really that balance. Um, and not being afraid to ask yourself, it is okay to fail. Not all ideas are meant to be successful. I mean, I've had many times in my life I've launched things that I just was way ahead of the time. Um, so, you know, don't become either so in love with your own idea that you're not honest about its relevancy or its potential for success. What great advice. This has been so much fun. I have one last question for you. What is one thing that we or one story we just would not know by looking at you? A story maybe you've never told before. So this story is probably one of the um, not best kept secrets, but sort of it just never was popularly known. But um, back in I, I think it was around 2009-ish, um, me and a business partner at the time happened to um, – cross paths with Kanye West. It was still pretty early days in his career. And we met his mother, Donda, who was an amazing woman. And um, we were able to strike a business deal where we had um, his rights for fragrance and personal care and beverage. And um, unfortunately, um, about two or three weeks after we signed the deal, his mother passed away, which was really heartbreaking because she was she was a force of nature. And um, yeah, and I, I went to her funeral and was there with his whole entourage. And but it was a, a moment in time. I look back and I think, wow, like, uh, you know, I, I, I could have developed Kanye's brand. Um, once she passed, it, it, it didn't really work out. Um, I think, you know, there were a lot of factors, but that was a fun, a fun moment in time. Wow. Do you still keep in touch with Kanye? No, <laughs> no, no, but. I bet Kim would like your line. <laughs> well, we did a makeup artist who does the makeup for Courtney, um, hand gifted Lolly to Courtney the other day. Mm. So everyone light whatever candle, say whatever prayers. Yes. But I think we this is love. right up her alley. Yes. I think she's all about she's stuff. That she's right? perfect. Like, yep. So I, you know, that's one of those things you put in the universe and then you just have to, well, to try to put it into the universe right the universe. now. Courtney Kardashian and Lolly Beauty. Yes, it's going to happen <laughs> by the time this, this episode airs, right? <laughs> Tina, where can everyone find and follow you and buy your incredible products? So online, we're lollybeauty.com, which is L-O-L-I beauty.com. And for your listeners, we would love to offer a code of entrepreneurista 15 to get um, 15% off as your first time purchase. Ooh, amazing. Thank you. I love that. Thank you so much. Entrepreneurista 15. I'm using it. And on Instagram, where are you on Instagram? Instagram, we're lolly.beauty. And DM because I will, with any questions, because I personally answer and um, that's very important to me, and I'd love to know what questions you have about your skincare um, and blending and personalization, anything you like to ask, I'm, I'm there. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming today and sharing your story. I've personally learned so much from everything that you've shared. 
I definitely have. We're going to have to do a part two of this. Yes, absolutely. And thank you everyone for tuning in. We will be back next week with another incredible entrepreneurista. Until then, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneurstas. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurstapodcast.com. Entrepreneurista is produced by Mouth Media Network for Socialfly. Copyright 2019, Socialfly, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.